I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Well, in these times of government-mandated quarantines for many of the U.S. states and even countries around the world, the issue of the biblical role of government and the response of individual Christians and churches collectively to government is an understandable topic of concern. While our current dilemmas, particularly with churches being encouraged not to meet, are certainly complicated, and I don't intend here to offer any simple solutions, I would like to provide in this episode a little bit of clarity on what the Bible teaches about the purpose and role of government, and then spend a few moments talking about what we should do as Christians and as churches collectively when and if the government tells us to do something that contradicts clear commands of the Lord. So first, what is the role of government? Well, it's important to recognize, first, that God rules over his creation, and he does so in two related but distinct ways. First, God sovereignly rules universally and eternally. We find this throughout the scriptures. For instance, the psalmist proclaims, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 103.19 And in another place, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. These are expressions of God's universal reign over all things. All aspects of the universe fall under God's complete sovereign control, including social structures, family structures, agriculture, the arts, everything. God rules it all. But second, God also rules in a more narrowed and specific way over his redeemed people. He takes those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, and according to Matthew 13, he makes us sons of the kingdom. We who have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, as Paul says in Colossians 1.13. But second, God exercises this twofold rule through human beings. Some of how God rules in these two ways is indirectly through providence. For instance, God might use weather or a pandemic to orchestrate his will among the peoples of the earth. However, God has also chosen to exercise his rule in both respects, universally and among his redeemed people, through human beings. So in terms of his redemptive rule over his chosen people, God rules in this age through his church and through the mandate that Christ gave to his church, and that is make disciples, Matthew 28, 19. But on the other hand, God has chosen to exercise his universal rule over all things partly through two fundamental institutions that he created, family and government. In Genesis 2, 18 through 24, God established the institution of marriage and, by extension, family. And this is one of the fundamental building blocks of human society and one of the central human institutions that God used and still uses to cultivate and preserve order and flourishing in his world as an extension of his universal rule over all things. But additionally, in Genesis 9, 6, God established 
the institution of human government. As part of his covenant with Noah, God said, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. You see, human government is an extension of God's universal rule. God gave the responsibility of capital punishment, an exercise of his just judgment of sin, to all humankind as a means through which he would sovereignly control man's sinfulness and preserve the world in its order. And, and this responsibility, which takes shape in formal human governments over the course of history, has been given to humankind collectively, not just believing people. And so even unbelieving governors when they exercise justice against wrongdoing, are an extension of God's sovereign universal rule over all things and his work to preserve order in his world. Romans chapter 13 verse 1, I think, reiterates this point where Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The governing authority that Paul's referencing here is not the redemptive rule of God over his people. This is the earthly administration of making and enforcing laws that preserve peace and justice in the common everyday affairs of life. This kind of earthly rule, a rule that comes with authority derived from the ultimate ruler, has been instituted by that ruler. So even something seemingly mundane like government, something, something earthly, has been instituted by God in just the same way as he instituted the church and rulers within the government of God's redeemed people. And not only that, notice in Romans 13 what Paul says about a governmental ruler who does what God has instituted in punishing wrongdoing and protecting the innocent. In verse 4, Paul says, For he, that is that governmental ruler, he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Do you see what he's saying there? A government employee, someone like a governor or a legislator or a judge or a police officer who does his job and enforces laws that help to establish peace and order in society, Paul is saying, is a servant of God. And then what does it say at the end of verse 4 there? When he punishes wrongdoing, he is actually carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God, God is ruling over his universal common kingdom, and he is doing that through unbelieving human rulers. You know, this reminds me of what Martin Luther said when he was interpreting Psalm 147, 13 and 14. That passage says, For God strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. And so Luther asks of this passage, How is it that God strengthens the, the bars of your gates? We believe that he does, but how does he do it? He does it by politicians who pass good laws to protect the city. How does God make peace in your borders? Luther asks. Well, he does that by means of good legislators and judges and policemen. These governing authorities, Luther said, are like the masks that God wears in caring for the world. 
So God rules his universe in two ways, universally over all things, and then specifically over his people. And government is one of the institutions that God himself established in order to preserve peace and unity within sinful societies. These two rules and their human governments, civic government on the one hand and the church on the other, are related, but it's important to recognize that biblically speaking, they are distinct. This biblical theology is really the basis for separation of church and state. God is ruling the world in general and his people specifically, and he does so in two separate distinct ways. Civic governments govern the world in general, and visible churches govern God's people. Church government does not have authority over the civic realm in its earthly functions, and neither does civic government have authority over churches in their redemptive functions. They're distinct. However, because individual Christians are members of both the civic realm and the redemptive realm, church leadership should instruct believers in what it means to live Christianly in civic society. So there is a relationship. Church leaders should instruct and help Christians to understand how to live out the implications of their relationship with God in society and how to obey the great commandments through being holy, active citizens in the society for the good of their fellow man. Nevertheless, church government doesn't have authority over the civic realm. And likewise, civic government does have God-given authority to speak to the sort of earthly, temporal, non-redemptive aspects of Christians' lives, and even to the operation of churches in the government's role of preserving safety and order in society. So things like building codes and child safety laws and health regulations and so forth. So you can see how these two governments, church and civic government, are distinct, but there is a relationship between the two as well. And with this understanding, then, a Christian's response to civic government should be one of participation and submission. The authority given by God to civic government as an extension of his sovereign rule over all things is exactly why, for example, Jesus himself said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. A healthy government that protects the innocent and punishes injustice is part of God's universal reign. And even if that government is pagan, this is still the case. Peter says this specifically in the context of teaching Christians how to live as sojourners and exiles in this life in 1 Peter 2, 13-18. He says that Christians should submit to earthly authorities and even honor them. Government was instituted by God himself, and inasmuch as governing officials rule with equity and justice, they are doing exactly what God intends for them to do. And so understanding this biblical theology is helpful. It doesn't solve all of the complicated church-state issues of our day, especially when human governors are corrupt and use their power for purposes other than God's institution, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But this biblical understanding of the purpose and role of government as something instituted by God himself does, I believe, help to resolve many of the extreme positions on either side of the debate. Now, before we talk about what we should do when a government that has been instituted by God tells us to do something contrary to the word of God, I want to recommend a book that I think is helpful on this topic. 
In 2017, Rod Dreher published the book The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. I don't agree with everything in this book. As a Baptist, there are certainly things I disagree with. But I think that the central message of what Dreher is seeking to get across in this book is very, very helpful, and in particular, relevant for Christians and churches as the culture around us and eventually the governments of our society get to the point where they begin to command us to do things contrary to Scripture. And the things that he suggests really are not all that remarkable. What he suggests is simply apply the biblical principles of what it means to be a New Testament church. And so I highly recommend this book. I think there's a valuable perspective here that would be helpful in our day and age. So scripture teaches that government was instituted by God himself. And so it is incumbent upon us that we submit to governmental authorities, even unbelieving ones. But what happens when the government commands us to do something that contradicts God's commands. Now, this, of course, is not a new question for Christians, and the Bible has answers to help us navigate the real-life situations that we may find ourselves in very soon. In fact, the earliest Christians experienced this kind of tension between the commands of governmental officials and the commands of God fairly early. In Acts chapter 4, the first time the disciples were persecuted for preaching the gospel, Peter asked a question of the Sanhedrin that in that chapter was largely left unanswered. He says in verse 19, Judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. Peter implied there that there was a contradiction between the commands of God and the commands of men, in this case, the religious and political rulers of Jerusalem. And he asked these judges of Israel to judge for themselves what to do in cases when the commands of God and men conflict. Now, of course, the Sanhedrin didn't answer this somewhat rhetorical question. But in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, the question is answered for us. And this is an account to help every generation of the church to answer that question. What do I do when the government issues decrees that are in conflict with biblical teaching? What do I do when I'm threatened from my public testimony? What do I do when the commands of God and men conflict? Well, this time in Acts chapter 5, when Peter is addressing the Sanhedrin, he does not ask them a question. He answers his own question from chapter 4 very explicitly. In Acts 5, verse 29, Peter proclaims strongly, We must obey God rather than men. So the answer to our question through Peter's response is very simply this. It is right to obey God rather than men, when the commands of men contradict clear commands of God. Now, I frame the answer in those terms specifically because the New Testament is very clear, as I've already said, that we are to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, we are to submit to the commands of our government. But when the commands of God and men do conflict, it is right to obey God rather than men. Now, I want to note four important qualifications to this proposition. First, we must make certain that it is really a contradiction before we disobey the commands of men. It would be easy for us to very quickly cite this principle whenever there is simply an apparent 
contradiction or when we simply don't like something that the government has commanded. For instance, if the government says that we cannot barge into someone's home and preach the gospel without their permission, we can't automatically claim we must obey God rather than men and do it anyway. We have an obligation to obey our government in those occasions. If we are going to disobey the God-instituted authorities above us, we must first make sure that their command is really a contradiction with God's commands. But second, in Acts 5, notice that the apostles and other believers did not take up arms and actively fight against these Jewish leaders. No, this was passive resistance. No band of Christians came to break the apostles out of jail in in, in the night, even though it was an unjust imprisonment. They passively resisted the commands of men when they contradicted the commands of God. That's the second important principle. But third, also notice that while this was a passive resistance, Peter did not simply refuse to obey and keep his mouth shut. He explained to them why he could not obey. And then he preached the gospel, just like the last time he was imprisoned. What is clear is that this resistance to the commands of men was not out of stubborn protection of their constitutional rights. Their resistance was for the sake of the gospel. And so the third principle is that if we are going to disobey the commands of men, we must make certain that we are doing so for the sake of the gospel. And then a fourth important qualification is found in another of Peter's statements that is found in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, where he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You see, Peter, who had experienced suffering himself, tells us not to be surprised when we suffer for Christ's sake. And then he also warns us that persecution against us should never come as a result of sin that we have committed. And then fifth, if you read through Acts chapter 5 in this account, notice the tone of Peter's response. Peter exemplifies a healthy balance that we should have between kind, respectful speech toward governmental authority, while at the same time never backing down from the clear truths of the gospel, no matter how offensive they might be. So while it is clear from Acts chapter 5 that it is right to obey God rather than men when the commands of men contradict the clear commands of God, we must remember these qualifications. We must make sure it is really a contradiction, that it is passive resistance, it is always for the sake of the gospel, it is never resistance when we have done wrong, and it is always respectful, but never backing down from the truth. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity 
in a post-Christian culture.